Well, Merry Christmas. I enjoy saying that. I hope you do too. I, in fact, I like to say it and look for people's response, especially in this politically correct world that we live in where people want to no longer say that. Here's the interesting thing for me as I have watched people's body languages. I have yet to see one person that was upset with the fact that I said Merry Christmas, even after they have said Happy Holidays. In fact, it's more like this. After they say Happy Holidays and I say Merry Christmas, they go, I should have said it. And I enjoy that, so I hope that you will do the same. It's hard to believe that in four days we will celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a joy that will be. You know, but I think in this country, this great country that we live in, where we have the freedom to worship Jesus in any way that we choose, we have taken Christmas for granted. We don't realize the freedom that we have. And even as we'll see today in our sermon, uh, it doesn't cost us much to worship Jesus. And I think because of that, that has distorted our relationship with him. You know, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the gospel and what the gospel means, that story of Jesus, and we've looked at the importance of it. We've looked at the value of the gospel. We've looked at the fact that because we were dead in our sins and without hope, that the gospel has taken on a whole lot more meaning, that the gospel is of this incredible value because of the change that it's done in our lives. You know, we saw in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that the gospel is described as a gift, And oftentimes we equate that with a free gift, but the reality is that it's not a free gift. It is something that uh, costs dearly, certainly to our Lord and Savior, but really is something that costs us a lot as well, that God calls us to leave everything behind in sake of receiving this gift. Now, I'm not sure what kind of Christmas traditions that you have in your home. Uh, I know there's all sorts of traditions. In fact, I heard of one that we use from time to time in our home on K-Love this morning as I was coming in. Uh, and, And does anybody like to hide Christmas presents around the house? All right, so a few of you like to do that. Who likes to find the ones that are hidden? Right, it's, that's more in the joy of it. And then, so this woman was sharing that her husband, while they were stationed in Japan, they didn't have a whole lot to give, and so to, he was basically hiding presents, and that has turned into this family tradition. Now, we'll use that from time to time when there is a special gift, and we'll save that special gift to the end, and I feel sorry for my kids, because when I get into it, I'll go a little bit extreme, and I'll hide it in a place where they're most likely not to find it, but part of the joy for me is why watching them in the anticipation of even the finding of the gift. And even when they get frustrated, I confess, I actually enjoy that. But here's what I enjoy the most. Even in their frustration of not being able to find that thing that they anticipate, I enjoy giving them instructions to help them find it. If I, as an earthly dad, and you as earthly parents who are giving meaning, you know, meaningful gifts to us, but gifts that really are of insignificance, enjoy giving instructions to find it, how much more so then does God enjoy the process of helping people find the greatest gift that has ever been given? And so this morning, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about a few men who are on a journey to find Jesus. And I want us to discover a few lessons from them that will hopefully add to the incredible value of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that will add to the understanding how much God loves us, and that even these men, as they were on this journey to find Jesus, God met them where they were, and God continued to give them directions so that they could find Jesus. 
But ultimately, in the end, I want us to see what happened to these men when they found him. And so this morning, I want us to look at the story of the wise men or the magi from the east and, and follow their journey and discover some lessons from them that apply to us today. Now, we're familiar with these men. We're, you know, a matter of fact, well, let me just ask you this. How many are there? Ah, trick question, right? You all know me by now. I always like to ask these tricks. We don't really know. You know, because of tradition and some of the songs we sing, you know, we have deduced that because there is three gifts, there had to be three of them, right? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us. In fact, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information about them, but we do know a few things, that they were magi from the east, probably what is modern-day Iran, and so this journey would have been, if that's where they were from, because they're from Persia, it would have been an eight to 900-mile journey just to discover and find Jesus, that's a big deal, and we'll see why that's a big deal as we play that out. But they also enjoyed looking at the stars. That's where they were. That's what was one of their passions. And the interesting thing is that God met them in the midst of what they were interested in, as we'll see play out in our story. But one thing is for sure that their journey required faith, as does our journey with Jesus. It requires faith. But I want to make a point here that biblical faith always, it always has an object. I don't know if you've ever wondered what is it that, that those guys were putting their faith in from the beginning that would cause them to travel eight to 900 miles, leave everything behind to find what they hoped would be the answer to their questions. Well, I believe that these guys, we don't know for sure, would have, because they're from Persia, would have had, have had access to the writings of Daniel, you know, and they would have discovered in Daniel chapter 9, and we'll, we'll see later on that they did have access to some of the prophecies, which, by the way, if you're a skeptic like me, go back to the Old Testament and discover the prophecies of Jesus. Because as we'll see, even in the story today, that's what started these men's journey to discover Jesus. But Daniel, in, in Daniel chapter 9, he prophesied about Jesus, the birth of Jesus, when and where he would be born. And I believe that was perhaps where these guys had understood that there was something about this king. Maybe Balaam, you remember Balaam's donkey, you know, and Balaam, he made a prophecy back in Numbers, and Balaam was from just outside of Persia. He prophesied that a star was going to come out of Jacob. Now, we don't know with any certainty that that's what got these guys stimulated into looking for a star, thinking it might be a literal star, but we do know from the text that we'll look into today that God revealed to them a star. So it was a journey of faith. And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1 and read the story. It says this, now after Jesus was born, so just a little side note here, give you this free of charge, that uh, what does tradition tell us? That the Magi and the shepherds showed up on the scene at the same time, right? Not according to what I'm reading here. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, and they were asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so here's these guys that were on this journey that God revealed to them a star. You know, they had already, and we'll see this unpack a little bit in the, in the verses, in verse 6 and following, that they were familiar with the prophecy, but they had to have enough faith to begin this journey. And the same is true for anybody today. There has to be enough faith to begin a journey to discover who Jesus is. And so these guys left everything that they knew, 
you know, and began this eight to 900 mile journey based upon what they read in these prophecies and the star that God revealed to them to find Jesus. But this journey also required sacrifice. They had to leave everything that they knew behind. Think about it. If you and I were to go on and embark on an eight to 900 mile journey, how do we choose to get there? Well, if you had any funds, you'd probably choose to go by airplane, but that would cost you something, wouldn't it? If you had to drive, thankfully fuel prices are down, but that would take a long time. And if you have kids, that would cost you dearly, right? Enough said. But it cost them quite a bit to go, and and, and traveling back then would have been quite dangerous. And, And we'll see in the text that they had these valuable gifts that they were taking with them, and it would have been an incredibly dangerous journey. But they left the comforts of their home based upon the faith that they had in the facts of these prophecies to begin this journey with Jesus. And as we see again in verse 2, it says, They saw the star that rose in the east. They came and they said, when, when Herod the king heard this, in verse 3, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. And they told him in the Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. Here's where we have evidence that they were aware of this. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they were aware of Jesus. Now it's interesting today that there's so many people that want to try to explain to you what this star was. And guess what? We don't know what the star was, and the Greek word doesn't help much either because the Greek word can mean three different things. Guess what it can mean? It's a star, or it could be a planet, or guess what else it might be? It's supernatural guiding light. So that doesn't help us much either, does it? And so we really don't know what the star was, and there's some that would actually claim that they can go back and look at things and that there really was a star that shone brightly back during that time period, and that very well may be, but we don't know. Being the simple guy that I am, I just ask myself this question. If the star was such that everybody could see it, why did Herod have to ask them where Jesus was? I think it may have just been God supernaturally guiding these men on their discovery to find Jesus. And so it was a journey that required faith. It was a journey that required sacrifice. And as we pursue Jesus, in our culture, we don't realize and understand that it cost us something to pursue Jesus. But here's the thing. When they found Jesus, it demanded their worship. Their journey began with some factual evidence based upon the prophets. They were on this long journey that cost them something dearly. It was a sacrificial journey. But when they found him, let's drop down to verse 9, they immediately worshiped. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. You know, here it says they went into the house, and there's another indication that this was after the fact. It wasn't in the stable where Jesus was. They went into the house, and they fell down and worshiped Jesus. 
you know, on our journey to discover Jesus, that God meets us where we are. He'll give us, as, as we seek Jesus and we look at what the Word of God already says and we seek Him with all our heart, God's Word says, you will find Him. God will make Him available to you. And these guys, when they, they came in the presence, they knew with certainty that this was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I often wonder, and this is just how my crazy brain works, that my mind almost never, well, I don't think it ever shuts down, even when I'm asleep, but I often think, what were these guys' conversations like on this eight to 900-mile journey? They were probably referring to the prophets and what the prophets said. You know, I'm sure they were having all these discussions, and then here's this light or this star, whatever it was that's guiding them, and that would have been amazing of itself, but I would expect that these men would have been talking about every possible scenario. What's going to happen if we never get there, or when we get there, it's not what we thought it was, but it's clear that when they got there, they knew with absolute certainty that this was something special. And they dropped to their knees and they worshiped God, but their worship also cost them something. Matter of fact, they came with gifts already, which is amazing to me when you think about the gifts they have. And we pick up in, in verse 11, when they fell and they worshiped him, then they opened up their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. These are some pretty amazing gifts when we think about them. And again, right here in our text, it doesn't really tell us what these gifts are. But as we go back into the Old Testament and we go back to the culture of the day, we can deduce a lot of things about these gifts. That gold was a very precious metal. It's still a precious metal to us today. And that many, many people, in fact, most people when they get married, they, they buy the highest quality gold that they can as a symbol of their commitment. But if you go back to the Old Testament, even you go back to the little G gods of other people, what were the gods always covered with? Gold, right? You know, in the Old Testament, gold was the sign of deity. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant, what was it covered in? The finest of gold, gold that was purified by fire. And so here comes these three men who didn't know Jesus prior to. They had read the prophecies, studied the prophecies. God met them and brought them along the way in their journey to find Jesus. And they brought gold that many believe, and I would agree, that was a sign of deity, that this baby was not an ordinary baby, that he was God in the flesh. Let that sink in for a little bit. God in the flesh, the God in his great love for us, sent his son in total humility to take on the form of an infant. And then that infant to eventually surrender and sacrifice his own love, his own life for us, to demonstrate his love to us, and why we were yet sinners, that he took on the entire wrath of God in our place. This baby was deity. He was God in the flesh. And then there's frankincense. Frankincense was a resin. It was, you get it from trees, and so you would slit the bark in the trees, and you would capture the sap as it comes out. You know, and, and frankincense was used to, um, really it was used as a fragrant burnt offering, you know, that you would burn it in, in offering to a god. You know, and so even in the Old Testament, we look at these burnt offerings that are offered up to God, and it's very interesting that these men would have bought, brought frankincense, you know, to God. Think fast forward ahead to what Christ was going to do. But again, here's this baby who is deity, God in the flesh. Then now this second gift is an indicator that this baby would be offered as what? A sacrifice. Why? For you and me. The story of the gospel that we've seen these last few weeks as we looked at the significance of the gospel that this baby was here 
to be the ultimate sacrifice. And then myrrh, also captured the same way that frankincense would have been in a tree. But this is interesting. It was turned into a spice. You know what it was typically used for? Used primarily for two things that we see in the Bible. One was for burial. It was a burial spice. But the second, we see it in the New Testament with the word gall. When Jesus was on the cross, remember they offered him the drink. Guess what was mixed? Myrrh. He refused it. But what an incredible symbol. Deity, a sacrifice unto death. It's an amazing that God, as he revealed to these men along the way who Jesus was, and if you're just a little bit more curious about some of the prophecies of old, in Isaiah 60, verse 6, it actually refers to what these guys would bring. It says this, A multiple of camels shall, shall cover you. Young camels from Midian and Ephra and those from Sheba shall come. And let's look, look at this. And they shall bring what? gold and frankincense, and they shall bring the good news of the praises of the Lord. It amazes me when you look through the Word of God from the front cover to the back, from Genesis to Revelations, the same thread of God's grace to all people is from the beginning to the end. Yes, God revealed himself to the Jewish nation so that the Jews would be a blessing to every other nation. But you see, and this story is a perfect example that God sent his son because he loved what? The entire world, he sent his only son to become a sacrifice for you and for me to pay the ultimate price because we are nothing but sinners. Here are a bunch of guys that were not Jewish that God is pursuing so that they would find Jesus. And so their journey required faith. It required great sacrifice. When they found Jesus, it made them drop to their knees. But there's one final thing I want us to see this morning, that in our journeys with Jesus, when we really discover who he is, it makes us come to the point in our lives where there's total change. Now that they met Jesus, their lives were forever changed. They understood that he was indeed who the one was prophesied about. We see in, in verse 12 that God continued to speak to them, that they were warned in a dream that Herod, who they had already agreed with to go back to, that Herod wanted them to come back and tell him where he was so that Herod would come and kill Jesus. And so they departed and went another way. God requires our lives to change and be transformed. The gospel is not just there so that one day we have this fire insurance plan that we get to spend eternity with God, but the gospel is there so our lives can be transformed from the very moment that we understand who Jesus is and we drop to our knees and cry holy that forevermore God is in the process of transforming our lives. As we come to a conclusion this morning, I have no idea where you are, although I do know where many people in our church are. Many people have come here this morning and are in all sorts of pain. Some have recently, in the last few days, lost loved ones. Matter of fact, I'm going to do a funeral immediately following the service of a man who was struck and killed instantly by a vehicle. Some of you are mourning the loss of loved ones that have died over this last year, and that's very difficult. Some of you are dealing with very difficult circumstances in your life, and you're pretty skeptical as to spiritual things. In fact, you're skeptical about the church. All of us come with all sorts of things, and we're in different places with our journeys with Jesus, but the same that was true for these men is true for us. If you really want to find Jesus, it requires faith. It 
requires sacrifice on our parts. It requires worship when we find him. And when we find him, he will change everything.